I went out walking through streets paved with gold Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, -face. and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Yes, we are all here. Harold Camping was wrong, and, uh, you know, a lot of people bought into what he had to say. Glenn Beck took it upon himself in talking on his, uh, on his program the other day that essentially, duh, people should know better than to believe such misguided nonsense. Well, the one thing that maybe Mr. Beck didn't uh, remember is that his own prophet of the restored gospel, Mormonism, in uh, 19, 1835 said, uh, essentially it said that the coming of the Lord would be in 56 years. That's in Church Volume 2, page 182, from the time that he said it. As with Harold Camping's prophecies, these prophecies of Joseph Smith were not fulfilled because they... Uh, uh, but these were not the only failed prophecies of Joseph Smith. He said many, many things. Uh, if you go to utlm.org, you can read about all the failed prophecies of Joseph Smith. There's no difference between them. I understood some guy uh, took all of his life savings, $141,000, and spent it for Harold Camping to put up billboards and lost all of his life savings in order to warn the world of this. But it's no different than what people do in the LDS church, giving all they have, coveting all they have for another false prophet. These, these false prophets are all the same. The only solution to understanding if you're being misled or not is the Word, the Word of God. You read the Word of God and it tells you, is Harold Camping right? I never gave it a second thought. I didn't even know. You open the Word of God and it says, no man knows the hour of the day. Jesus said that. So Harold Camping, Harold Cramping. Joseph Smith, whatever. It's, it's, it's people. But the Mormons are not any different from the Christians who believed in camping in this, this recent adventure. By the way, I just heard he changed the date to October uh, uh, 21st. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Just whatever. Okay. A friendly weekly Bible study. Yes. Never denominational. Yes. At the University of Utah. Yes. Information, yes, it's available at calvarycampus.com. We started with around 20 people, and uh, we're upwards of around 90 now. And uh, we just get together, and we pray, and we study the Word of God, and we fellowship together. And while you're driving to that Bible study, you might tune in to AM820 and uh, hear replays of Heart of the Matter from 1 to 2 p.m. every Sunday afternoon. After the Bible study, there's a support group of people coming out of Mormonism uh, they call it You're Not Alone. Uh, it's kind of led by uh, an ex-LDS bishop. 
and his wife, and there's a lot of people who sit around and talk, and they share stories and, and ideas, and that's from 3.30 to 4.30, in the same room as the Bible study. So for those of you who say Bible study, that's a terrifying concept. I ain't going to go to no Bible study. Take a look at what goes on there. Those cookies that you saw, I baked them myself. Absolutely not true. I bought them at the store. Absolutely not true. I don't know who brought them, but they're always there. Someone brings food every time. They, I think they have a schedule going around, and it's really nice, so come join us. www.calvarycampus.com for more information. Aletheia Ministries has an arm of the ministry that we call Aletheia Media. This program is, falls under that uh, subcategory of Aletheia Ministries, Aletheia Media. From the beginning, this ministry has based its everything we do on a three-part premise. To reach, to teach, and to serve in the name and cause of Jesus Christ. Now, you'll notice that from the start, the word Mormon or LDS is not in uh, or been part of our core objectives. Yes, our outreach to the LDS has been very fruitful, uh, but at our core, we're founded on reaching and teaching uh, and serving in the name of our King and Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, part of this includes reaching out, reaching out to teens. Now, at one time we had a, a television show that we were gonna do for teens, but it kind of got nixed because we were messing up a little bit, but, um, because our, is, our focus is a media-based ministry, and because we focus on reaching out to people, uh, last year we presented our first uh, short film called Girl. And uh, we are now prepared in the next few, probably the next month or so, to air Boy. We wanted to show you a little trailer, a little clip of what that's going to look like. I was taught three things. Charge, seize, and conquer.
Now, those of you who saw a girl know that there's this romance going on between her and that boy. And now this one's the boy's perspective of that romance. We look forward to seeing it. We're going to have the premiere. We'll announce it. Look forward to it and hope you'll all come. All right, let's take a minute if they're ready. I don't know if they are. And we'll hear we're not ready. We're going to skip that little intro and we're going to hear from the word. From the word. That was supposed to be playing right now. And here we go. We've been in Matthew 16 for a few weeks, and we're going to continue therein tonight. Right after Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, verse 18, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, uh, which we covered two weeks ago. We go to verse 19. He says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is a huge passage in the annals of uh, religious interpretation. Now, if you grab a Bible and you pick a verse and you read it, you can make it mean almost anything that you want it to mean. I mean, we could take this passage and say, Jesus gave Peter, uh, Peter, Peter <laughs> Jesus gave Peter the keys to the gate of heaven. And when you die, you go to Peter and he holds that key up and he looks at you and he says, you get to come in, click, come on in. And, and if he says no, then you go directly to hell. We can interpret it that way, just all by itself. Uh, the LDS say that these keys that Jesus is giving to Peter were keys to a priesthood that would give men the authority to act on earth on behalf of God. A priesthood that would be passed down to other people through the laying on of hands who supposedly held this priesthood that Peter is getting, these keys to this priesthood. Then the LDS say that with those keys, Jesus gave Peter the power to bind things here on earth and whatever he bound or tied together here on earth, the LDS say, would be bound in heaven. And the LDS say this is talking about marriages. If you're married by their priesthood that they say they hold, that holds these keys, then your marriage, they say, will be bound together here on earth and in heaven. So the LDS uh, use this passage in Matthew to justify their teaching of eternal marriage. You got all that? Well, let's do what Christians do when we read a passage. Instead of just taking the passage and reading it in the English and reading it out of context, we take the passage and we look at the tense, we look at the verbs, we look at the context of the passage, we look at the phraseology and how it was related to the culture at the time, and the passage, uh, how it was set in the chapter, how it was set in the book of Matthew, how it is set in the New Testament, and how it is set in the Bible as a whole. When you have a difficult passage or an obscure passage, you look at all these things to see what it could mean and what it absolutely does not mean. All right, so let's show that passage again. Jesus says to Peter, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We all agree that a key is an instrument for opening something. In this sense, we can say it is the key to opening up the gospel gates, let's say. Uh, the person in possession of these keys or a key, he or she is responsible 
for what happens within uh, that edifice that people are entering into. If I have the key to this building and I'm the only one who has it and I let people come in, I am responsible for the administration of what those people do inside this building because I have allowed them to come in. In the Bible, a key is certainly used as uh, symbolic of uh, spiritual superintendence and an emblem of poverty and yeah, sometimes even authority. When Jesus says the key, the kingdom of heaven here, he is speaking of the church here on earth. So when he says to Peter that he will give him the keys of the kingdom of heaven, he's saying he will make him the one who opens the gates of this faith here on earth once the Holy Spirit came. And Jesus told Peter, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And once Peter opened those church gates, Jesus said they would never close again and the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against them. Did Peter use the keys given to him by Jesus? Absolutely. He was the one who first preached and then opened up the gospel, uh, first to the Jews on the day of Pentecost and then to the Gentiles at Cornelius's house with all of his family. Once Peter opened the doors, the other apostles, including John and Paul and James, under the direction of the Spirit, spoke the rules of this administration. And the church uh, and it kind of established the rules for this church. And those rules were then recorded and they were copied and they were compiled ultimately into the Bible that we use. Peter was not the one who headed the church once the doors were open. We know this because Paul did his own thing under the direction of Jesus and the other apostles like James made decisions for the body instead of and even ahead of Peter. Now Jesus also says to Peter in conjunction with giving him the keys to the opening the gospel gates to the Jew and the Gentile like he says, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is going to blow your mind, LDS. Remember, especially if you're Catholic, that this power of binding and loosing on earth was given to the other apostles too, and not to just Peter. You can read about that in Matthew 18, 18. The only preeminence then that Peter had was the honor of opening, first opening the door of the gospel to the Jews, and then he himself opened the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, again, the LDS say this verse speaks of Peter's ability to seal people in marriages here on earth. This is wholly comical. Uh, the phrase to bind and to loose was frequently used by the Jews. It meant to prohibit or to permit, to forbid it or to allow it. To bind a thing was to forbid it, not to tie it together, okay? And to loose a thing was to allow it to be done, not to untie it the way you would read it in the normal English. For example, when it came to gathering wood on the Sabbath day, you can read in the Hebrew writings Quote, the school of Shammai binds it. They forbid it. The school of Hillel looses it. They allow it. When the LDS read the term bind and believe it to mean something like cementing or tying a couple up for eternity, in reality, it actually means the opposite. To bind something in scripture means to forbid it. 
When Jesus said to the apostles, he, what he meant was that whatever they forbid to happen in the church would have divine authority and would be permitted, loosed, uh, uh, or bound, forbid. In other words, knowing that the apostles would be guided by the Holy Spirit, Jesus had no problem giving them this authority to act in his name here on earth. As a final nail in the misappropriated use of this passage by the LDS, notice that Jesus says, whatsoever. This refers in the Greek to things, not to people. He did not say whomsoever you bind on earth, but whatsoever. So even if binding did mean tying together, but it doesn't, but even if it did, this speaks of events or practices in the church that the apostle would allow or forbid not joining people together eternally in marriage. Take note and slam these poor misguided LDS elders who use this passage so wrongly when they try to use it from the Bible to prove that eternal marriage was biblically supported. Aletheia Ministries is able to, and, to continually and fruitfully reach, teach, and serve because of your prayers, because of sharing the program with others, because of your financial support. Please prayerfully consider the following. When the truth is found to be camera lady Marnita was just dancing to that behind the camera. It was really nice. Okay, listen, with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we uh, come to you and we present this program to you. We need your help to run it and for things to go smoothly. We pray that you'll send your spirit and open up the eyes and minds and hearts and ears of people who are searching for truth. Those who aren't, Lord, they're not going to hear it, but those who are searching, Lord, uh, touch them with your spirit, wherever they may be. We thank you for everything. We thank the volunteers. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in the midst of examining the ground from which Joseph Smith is going to eventually try to plant the seed and grow the Book of Mormonian. As we continue to examine the ground for this Book of Mormonian, ask yourselves, could this book truly have come holy from an ancient record on golden plates, or did it come from somewhere else? Last week, we discussed some important American political themes that Joseph included in his Book of Mormon. These included a variety of frontier ideals that helped ward off enemies to the New Republic, like anarchy and tyranny. Remember, these preventive ideals included a personal dedication to industriousness, an agrarian approach to labor, avoiding luxury, like the wearing of fine apparel, 
and a rejection of secret combinations or groups like the Masons, with Joseph, which Joseph Smith so conveniently renamed in his Book of Mormon the Gadianton Robbers. Growing up on early American soil, these issues flooded every conversation, every casual family gathering, every newspaper page at one point or another, and it's easy to see how these themes wove their way into what was really a book that addressed contemporary issues of Joseph Smith's time. Okay, so stay with me. If luxury, indolence, fine apparel, and living off the others was indicative of a nation pushing toward the state of anarchy, then few organized religions more perfectly represented all that was wrong in the nation than Catholicism. There was a great contempt in early America for the Roman Catholic faith. Professor Kenneth Wynne said, quote, If lusting after gain represented an occupational hazard for lawyers and merchants and threatened the harmony of the Nephite society in the Book of Mormon, priestcraft menaced the Nephites with their entire destruction. And in the Book of Mormon, Joseph intimates strongly that the preeminent priestcrafting church was Catholicism. To, personif to personify excuse me, this ugly priestcraft Catholicism represented, Joseph Smith crafted a perfect prototype in a Book of Mormon character by the name of King Noah. Whether other Nephite leaders typically fit the hardworking Republican uh, model of virtue, King Noah was the embodiment of religious and political corruption. No other Book of Mormon character more uh, represents all that early American patriots feared and loathed. Joseph Smith writes that King Noah, quote, walked after the desires of his own heart, end quote, and, quote, passed his time in riotous living with his wives and concubines, while surrounding himself with wicked priests who possessed similar penchants for luxurious hedonism. This was anarchy waiting to happen. Then, according to the Book of Mormon, King Noah and his priests were, quote, supported in their laziness and in their idolatry and in their whoredoms by the taxes which King Noah had put upon his people. Thus did the people labor exceedingly to support iniquity, end quote. This was tyranny. And why, what would be the result of such indolent tyranny? If King Noah, the message is, if King Noah's ways were allowed to continue, the savages, the Indians, or the Lamanites would come in and overtake the nation, possibly placing the once righteous Nephites in bondage by stripping them of their newfound freedoms. The, these were the exact same fears that existed in the early settlers and frontiersmen in this new republic or new world. If things weren't done right, Either the British would return and laden America with monarchy and taxes, or the savage Indians would enter the picture and wreak havoc upon this early national tranquility. Again, Joseph took the two greatest fears grounded in, in uh, American republicanism, anarchy and tyranny, and gave them a face in the form of the lawless Lamanites, the Indians, and the tyrannical King Noah, a hedonistic monarch, all as a means to warn the nation of its pending doom uh, should it not repent. But Joseph Smith didn't stop here. He also used the book to summarize his myopic view of Christendom. 
its apparent collapse, which mirrored a common belief held in the hearts of even Christians in early America at the time. And he then pointed the finger of blame and the responsibility for Christian, Christianity's collapse directly at the Catholics. In a popular uh, view among the Protestants surrounding Joseph Smith's life, the Book of Mormon echoes the belief that the devil took over the simple church that Jesus established and founded a, quote, great and abominable church, which LDS apostle Bruce R. McConkie once said was the Catholic church. In the Book of Mormon, the Pope and his toadies represent the same anti-Republican virtues as King Noah. They were whoremongers, were greedy green for wealth, they lived off the labors of the poor, and they per persecuted and killed the true followers of Jesus. According to Joseph, this contributed, this, excuse me, corrupted religious institution also saw fit to remove the plain and precious truths from the Bible, uh, which helped them enslave all of Europe and the rest of the world spiritually. The truth of the matter, however, lies in what the Bible says happened to Christ's church once he ascended into heaven. It doesn't lie in what myths and what men and what fear mongers uh, say happened. The Bible tells us exactly what the outcome would be. But like most startup religions in the 19th century, Mormonism, i.e. Joseph Smith, decided to write his own solutions to the story, all the while forgetting that God is in charge of the hearts of men. The Bible is very clear telling us what would happen to the church shortly after it was established by uh, Jesus. Certainly it fell into difficulty. Revelation chapter 3 summarizes these troublesome periods quite well. The difficulties began with the Gnostics and with Arianism and with Judaizers and with Constantine, basically with men. When men are involved in religion, there are going to be problems, and the early church was not exempt from this. But the Bible never says the church would be lost or stopped or corrupted to the point when Satan prevails. Because, because the true church of Jesus Christ is established in the hearts of people by virtue of the Holy Spirit, not in institutions. And with the Holy Spirit moving where it wants and touching those who believe, there is no way the gates of hell could prevail against the church, even if the church came down to one person on earth being a believer. It couldn't be eradicated. The Holy Spirit was working. Are we to believe that every single believer on earth was destitute of belief in Jesus Christ and that the gospel was lost in its entirety? Mormonism would have us believe yes. But the description of the church at Sardis in Revelations chapter 3, it says the answer is no. No, there has always been believers. There have always been a remnant of believers in every dispensation. If you read the Trail of Blood, it talks about the Catholic Church uh, growing in power. But the Trail of Blood talks about a group of Anabaptists who kind of circumvent the, the, the Catholic uh, dominion. And they, they are firm believers moving on all the way through history, early church history. The day of Pentecost ensured us that Jesus was true to his promise that we would never be left alone. And the Holy Spirit has never abandoned us. So when the Holy Spirit falls inside men, uh, God would never leave us alone. But to Joseph, there was another solution. It was called complete apostasy. And these apostasies occurred because of the Catholic Church defiling the Bible. And he was echoing restorationist themes that were popular among Christians at the time and where he lived. 
to Joseph's grandparents and parents and the community, God was one step ahead of the great and abominable church, the Catholic church that he calls the Catholic church in the Book of Mormon. And uh, he set aside a land that was choice above all others, the United States of America. And this was also believed by early Americans. And it was inhabited with the offspring of a family of wandering Jews. Another borrowed theme that we'll discuss down the line. And he inspired a nice Italian fellow uh, named Columbus to come and discover this land, which is echoed in the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith points it all out in the book, acting as if it was prophecy, when all it is doing is regurgitating past facts. Joseph continues in the Book of Mormon to then describe how God led people out of spiritually blighted Europe to come across here on ships, and, uh, which was another Puritan thought. He tells them in the Book of Mormon that if they serve him, they will never be brought into captivity or under a monarch like King George again, another Book of Mormon, uh, another early American thought. And um, Joseph Smith, nor his Book of Mormon, um, Joseph Smith nor his Book of Mormon were the ones to uh, discover or believe all these things. All of these elements were in the ground under his feet. He just brought them up and put them in place of the book. But like everything else, uh, he just amplified everything that the people from the Mayflower on believed. Okay, but then Joseph takes it all to another level. What does he do? He includes his own name in the Book of Mormon as the person that the Lord is going to use to restore the plain and precious truths that the Catholic Church took out of the Bible over a period of time. Take a minute and think about this. In 2 Nephi chapter 3 of the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith has a Book of Mormon named, character named Lehi give his youngest son a blessing. And in this blessing that Lehi is giving his youngest son, he tells him that a choice seer is going to come, uh, and Joseph of Egypt is the one who says this, who will be after the same name as him, and that this seer will share the same name as his father. So Joseph Smith included his own name as the one who would save America from the Catholic influence and from all the influences that were going to come because of evil men and, and conspiring men. He also included his name in chapter, I think, 33 of Genesis. 31 or 33, I think, of Genesis. He included his name when he rewrote the Bible. Okay? Here's the rub. The Book of Mormon reveals very, very little that is included in uh, the Bible. And we're going to go through and explain that as we continue to examine it. But right now, we've just formulated the ground upon which Joseph Smith, as a young boy, stood formulating ideas for this book. It was a, it was a representation of what is going to save America. It was an edict against the great and abominable church, which uh, Bruce R. McConkie said was the Catholic church. And all he did was echo all these ideas. We're going to see how he put them all together. Over the years, I have been asked by many people, how did Joseph Smith do the Book of Mormon? How did it happen? I've, I've uh, been reading many books by great authors on the book, and uh, I know now. I don't know completely, but I, can, I think I can give you an outline that is proved by history and facts of how Joseph Smith came about, what motivated him, and how he put this book together. We're going to share that with you when we conclude our examination of the contents and everything else about this book. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. While the operators are clearing your calls, we're going to read some emails. 
Uh, we're going to get to David in Houston, Texas in just a minute. So Dave sent an extremely excite insightful email to us. And in it, he mentions that the LDS believe that Joseph Smith had to restore the gospel to the earth to avoid all the confusion that exists between Christian denominations. He was going to bring back one church that had the truth and simply taught it and simplified it and everything else. So Dave, he got interested and he starts asking Mormons at, from mormon.org who they worship. That was the question to Mormons, active faithful Mormons. Who do you worship? Alan said, we, worship is reserved for members of the Godhead, Father, Jesus Christ, and Holy Ghost. Edgar said, we worship only God the Father and His Son. Earl said, we worship God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. Jessica said, we worship God only. McKay said, we worship the Father in Christ's name. Everything we do is to follow the example of Christ so we can return to Heavenly Father just like Christ did. Roberta said, I don't worship any human. I only worship and bow before God. Natalie said, all of our worship should be to Almighty God. Brandon said, we worship only Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. Derek said, our worship is focused on God, our Heavenly Father, and His Son. Danielle said, the head of our church and the person we worship is Jesus Christ. Fred said, we only worship God. Chad said, we worship our loving Father in Heaven only. Bruce said, we worship God the Father. Our worshipful devotion is directed to God the Father alone. Apostle Bruce R. McConkie said, we do not worship the Son. We do not worship the Holy Ghost. Dave then says, if I asked the members of my church who they worship and got these responses, I would be embarrassed. You ask any Christian, who do you worship? God. Who do you worship? Jesus Christ. Who do you worship? The Holy Spirit. You worship God. It is simple. It's clear. And I don't care what denomination. But you ask the Mormons and you get... 50 different answers for 50 different people. Really good work, Dave. Like that a lot. Let's uh, try Dave in Houston, Texas on line one. Dave, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello. Hello, um, Dave. Uh, I was closed off from the church. How is that different from being an apostate? Closed off from the church? What does that mean? I was told that I was closed off. Never heard of that. Never heard of that. I've heard disfellowshipped. I've heard excommunicated. I've heard a disciplinary uh, action by the bishop to kind of watch you. But closed off is a term I'm not familiar with. Yeah, I think it was um, associated with it or something. Did you do something wrong? Um, I told y'all to get me off their list. You told who? Uh, I told uh, your uh, ministries to get me off the list. Oh. <laughs> well, we don't get, take people's names off the list, Dave, so I, I don't know why they would... So who told you you're closed off? Uh, missionaries called me and huh? told me I was closed off. They were trying to get me to marry some girl at the branch, and I didn't want to do it. And they tried to extort me for $10,000 to receive the Melchizedek priesthood. What, pay up on tithing? Yeah, I wouldn't pay my tithing. I refused <laughs> to give them $10,000, and I refused to become a missionary. I know a true story right now I'll share with you while you're on the phone, Dave, not with you and the audience. I know a, a faithful LDS family, at one time faithful, their son was on his mission, 
and uh, he decided to come home. So they made him, they made them pay for his flight home, and uh, and then. Uh, when they said they wanted to leave the church, I swear to you, their bishop said they owed this amount in tithing before they go. <laughs> yeah, it's a business. Hey, good call, Dave. Thanks so much. Yeah, um, I was also offered four secret wives if I went on my mission. You think they were just pulling my leg? I wonder about this pulling leg concept as you and I talk. But anyway, uh, I don't, I've never heard of that one. Uh, but uh, interesting call, Dave. Thanks so much, Dave, out there in Texas. Jay writes, he has a very twisted idea of our ministry, but he wrote a very interesting email. He said, I've seen the show on YouTube, and I know you are speaking your truth, but I have no desire to be born again. I want what is in the temple. I want to do the magic, and I desire to go the way of the brother of Christ. People like you need to leave the church and go and be happy Christians in one of those groups Joseph Smith mocked. That is where you belong. I am a Satanist who was brought up LDS, and I do see the Mormons as Gnostic Luciferians with a thin coat of Christian words. But your statements, by your statements, you reject my gods and demons and want to be with Jesus. So go and be with them. Stop spreading your discontent. The LDS are certainly apostate, in my opinion, even if the teachings have valid points. They have tried to blend in for money and politics. Why do you play their game? Why do you identify as Mormon? Do you want only money and exposure? And so what he thinks is that we call our, I, the book is Born Again Mormon or whatever, and he doesn't like that identification because he thinks I'm trying to kind of cling to their popularity or their wealth or something. And the reason, uh, Jay, that... Uh, we say born-again Mormons because I was once LDS. I was a born-again Mormon. I was born again while I was in the faith. But that's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting concept you have there, that they are based on money. They're based on politics. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. Paul Spencer wrote about his family. He's not sure what to do. He's grown up inactive. His wife and he stopped attending the church. And a few years after, he decided he was an atheist because of the bad taste the LDS left in his uh, mouth. And uh, something in him spiritually died, he says. But while he was watching the show, something moved him. And he wants to know what to do. He says, do I start going to Christian churches? I discussed this with my wife. She's on board. We have a 12-year-old son. He has not been to a church since he was five. I'm not sure where we should go from here. Do we try these various churches? Do we do this as a family? Is there a Christian 101 class or book you recommend? Do you recommend for my son who doesn't... What do you recommend for my son who doesn't know anything about religion? Well, first of all, I would suggest write us another email and tell us where you live. This is a perfect time for us to set you up with one of our representatives. We have representatives all over the place now who have come out of Mormonism, who are Christian, and who can help disciple you and show you what you can do. The second thing is, is to search first for a church. A church can be helpful in helping you understand uh, what to do. But because you're so tainted and bitter by religion, you might find fault with any place you go. It happens all the time. So you might first and foremost kneel by yourself or, or go in your car or sit with your wife and ask God to, to lead you. That's the first thing. 
kind of give over your heart and bitterness and sadness and life to God and trust him to suddenly start speaking with you and working with you and trust where he leads. You go to a church and they're doing things you don't like, it's okay. You can go to a different one. There's plenty of churches probably in your area. But start first with that. But the first thing to do, sorry, is write us and tell us where you are and we'll hook you up with somebody who's done the same thing and hopefully help you on that journey. Paul. Stephanie writes, is baptism required to be with God? And if so, where does it say so in the Bible? Baptism is best understood as identification. The word baptizo is not even a, a spiritual or religious term. It's a Greek term that is a means of identifying uh, fabric. It's a clothing and textile term. And what they would do is they would take fabric and they would dip it in dye and they would change its color. And so uh, baptism certainly was a command of Jesus, but it's a command to do because you believe in him. You have a faith in Christ. And because of that inward faith, you do this outward expression of publicly proclaiming yourself uh, his some people think that if they go to church and they get up off the bench and they go down to the front and they ask to be saved in front, that that's the public profession. But when it says in scripture that you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, I believe that that is the baptism event. When you get into the waters of baptism before people in public and you say, hey, you believe in Jesus Christ. Yes, I do. And you want to be baptized in his name because of this faith. Yes, I do. That's that public profession. And that baptism is an identification with him. How? Well, Jesus, he went down into the grave and he rose up. You, your old person, Sean McCraney, goes down into the grave and he is, uh, he's buried with Christ and he comes up a new creation in Christ. And so you formally tell the world, I am now being identified with Christ like a piece of fabric, black, you're dipped into the dye, you come up white and you are now going to go forward as a Christian. Will you be perfect? No. Does baptism save you? No. It's an outward identification marking of that you being a Christian. You could liken it very easily to circumcision. You could circumcise a man, it didn't make him a Jew. It was something a Jew did. A Christian then also is baptized. It's something Christians do. We're gonna try Tim in Texas. Another call from Texas. Tim, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, what's going on, man? Oh, same stuff, how are you doing? Good, hey, this is T-Biz, T-Busy. Got I've been emailing for a while. How you doing? No, never mind. <laughs> hey, I have to, <laughs> I have to, uh, I came across an LDS um, hymn book, and in the song, O Thou Before the World Began, Yeah. at the very end of it, it says, my Lord, my God, who dies for me. Yeah. Okay, so I thought God wasn't Jesus, and Jesus died. God didn't die. There's a few hymns the LDS have uh, where it will, uh, say, well, it will identify Jesus as God. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just take all that stuff as a good sign. We'll let that stuff sit there. They, you know, most of, not most, but a, a large percentage of the LDS hymnals were borrowed from Christian hymns. They didn't have any of their own hymns to start off with, so they took Christian hymns, put them in their hymn book, and they began to alter the words, and those could have slipped through, and they, they, they let it sit. It's okay. It covers their ground when someone says, oh, you're not Christian, you don't believe Jesus is God. They just pull out that hymn and say, yes, we do. But they really don't really identify him as God, and that's really what matters, their doctrine, not what they sing. 
Okay, and then something else for LDS people listening, um, 3 Nephi 19.18, I'm sure you're going to go over this, but I just wanted to point it out. It says, I'm, I'm quoting it, all right? I'm not beating around the bush here, I'm quoting it. And behold, they began to pray, and they did pray unto Jesus, calling him their Lord and their God. 3 Nephi 19.18. You know what's really interesting about that, Tim? Like you said, we're going to cover it is again, Joseph Smith, he borrowed from what was going on around him. That perfectly mimics a Christian evangelical revival. And he just included that verbiage in his Book of Mormon, this first little book. Later on, he'll renounce all that stuff. But the Book of Mormon uh, uh, often uh, portrays classic evangelical Christianity of the 19th century. Uh, and so that's why you have passages like that in there. They talk about people coming together in ancient America and clapping their hands, you know. And, and it it's just it depicts a Christian revival. But all he did was borrow from the things around him. I wish they would just look at it and then maybe, I don't know, their eyes would open somehow, you know. Just look at what their doctrine is saying. It's right there in front of your face. I don't think that it will happen that way simply because... Uh, when Joseph Smith continued on, this was 1830, he continued on to 1844, 15 years of garbage that followed that book, and they follow most of that stuff instead of what the Book of Mormon teaches. Yeah, and then the, uh, sorry, is it okay if I can keep Sure. Uh, yeah, um, I just don't, you know, the word of wisdom, don't, don't uh, drink this or that. It's like, oh, don't drink tea, but sure, I'll down 16 Dr. Peppers and eat 15 Ding Dongs. Right. Oh, but... They'll say, uh, well, we're not supposed to eat 15 ding-dongs either. Those people who are doing that aren't really devout LDS. Yeah. So they have, they, because the Word of Wisdom gives outlays uh, a good health uh, code for what you eat too. Vegetables and light meat and fruit and things like that. Yeah. All right, man. Yeah, I just wanted to point that out. And uh, uh, lastly, I want your mustache. I love your mustache. I need to grow it out. <laughs> like, Do it, dude. Let's start a revolution. Seriously. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Before you step into Mormon Temple, make sure you've um, shaved that, though. Yeah, that's exactly right. right Jesus man. wouldn't approve of this thing. My call. See you later. Thanks. All right, man. Bye. Okay, bye. Uh, we have a uh, patriarchal blessing here that someone gave me. Now, those of you who don't know, every stake uh, that's like a diocese, sort of, of the Mormon church, it, it includes seven or eight wards. Those are congregations. So every seven or eight congregations in the Mormon church comprises what's called a stake. And in those stakes, S-T-A-K-E, not S-T-A-E-A-K, in those stakes is a stake patriarch. And the first one was Joseph Smith's father. And the stake patriarchs, they will lay their hands on your head and they'll pronounce what's called a patriarchal blessing upon you. And it will tell you about your life if you live worthy. And uh, most active LDS have patriarchal blessings and um, not article, patriarchal blessings. And uh, it's interesting, as every now and then we get people send us copies of their patriarchal blessing. So if you want to do that, we'll start building a repository and, uh, and we'll just kind of keep them on a file. Maybe we can start going through them and seeing what these patriarchs are promising. I know my, brothers, uh, had, my brother had two because the first one was lost and uh, the second one was markedly different. I also know a bishop in Southern California who was confronted by several young women who came to, came to him with their patriarchal blessings and showed him that they were all identical. 
and so uh, maybe if you're interested, if, if you're so led and you're no longer LDS and you still hold these, we'll just kind of keep them together and we'll start seeing if there's a consistency that's being used when these men supposedly receiving direct revelation from God. It's almost like a, a, a spiritual horoscope. If you uh, live worthily, Sean, you are going to become this, you're going to become that, you'll do this, you'll do that. And it's all predicated, of course, upon your worthiness. So if you don't have something in there good happen that says it's going to happen, it's because you failed, not God. Okay, uh, we have Randy from Coesville off Ellie says, when are you going to disclose investments of the Mormon church? We've done a show on that. Look through the archives, Randy. Uh, you can also read uh, John, is it Shulman? John Shuneman's uh, book, The Mormon Corporate Empire. It's a green book. It's very good, and it tells about that. But we've done that before, and it's in our archives. For the next while, we're going to be covering the Book of Mormon. Brad writes, um, Sean, I have long been interested in Galatians 1.6. Galatians 1.6 says this, uh, just to let you know. It says, I marvel, Paul writes, that you were so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and that would pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul continues, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats it. As I said before, so I now say again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you other than which you have received, let him be accursed. Brad makes this point. He says, uh, I've always found it quite strange that the two biggest organizations of twistianity namely Islam and the LDS, are both based on claims of another gospel being given by an angel. In both cases, an angel appears and tells somebody, Muhammad and Joseph Smith, that the Bible is corrupt and there's a new book that is better. In both cases, the new teaching removes salvation through faith and a system of works is instilled in its place. In both cases, Jesus' true nature is refuted and he is made less than the Christ. What are your thoughts on this? I absolutely concur. Absolutely. The cults always uh, do those things. And the false religions will always be another gospel that preach another gospel. So great point, Brad. Really appreciate that. We're going to take a call from Lorna in West Jordan, Utah. First time caller. Lorna, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi, Lorna. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Um, I, was, I had this discussion with my sister. My whole family is LDS, and I'm the black sheep of the family. And I was trying to explain to her why, um, you know, other, like, they don't believe that the Mormons are Christian. And I'm like, it was so hard for me to try and explain to her why that is. And I also tried to tell her that, you know, she absolutely will not believe that Joseph Smith has, like, 33 wives. <laughs> and I wanted to point her out where she can go to read something that she's going to believe. Okay. First of all, the Joseph Smith question, let me give you a couple references. Okay. www.utlm.org. Okay. They use LDS research and writings and history 
to show you and prove to you these things. Oh, good. Okay? So you tell them, you could also go in and Google probably Joseph Smith's wives and get a laundry list of their names and ages. But go to UTLM because it will be uh, right there in front of you um, researched. Okay? okay? The other question is tough. And the reason is, is because um, Christianity is defined by the book that Christ authored, the Bible. And the LDS claim to believe in the Bible. So what they're thinking is, is we believe in Jesus Christ. We've just brought more to the table. And it's really hard for people who don't understand this book to realize that by adding more to Christ is to diminish Christ. You see? And so Jesus becomes less and therefore, it becomes less and less Christianity, okay? So let me give you an example we've used on the show before that you can give with her, okay? Okay. If you take a glass like this and it's full of uh, uh, water and you pour in as much salt as you possibly can, that represents true Christianity, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, if you take this cup and you pour the contents of it into a pail of water, that saline, that Christianity has been diluted. Then it, does it still have salt in it? Yes, it does. Does it have Christ in it? Yes, it does. But is it Christianity? It's diluted. Take that pail and pour it into a swimming pool. Is there salt in the swimming pool now? Is, is Christ in the swimming pool? Yes, he is. But is it Christianity? No, it's something different. Then take the swimming pool's contents and pour it in the Pacific Ocean. You see, and that's, that Pacific Ocean, in my opinion, represents what Mormonism is relative to Christianity. Okay. Okay, every single point about Christ that Christians stand on, they take and twist. You name the concept about Christ, and I'll show you how they twist it. Whether it was the cross, Christians, throughout the Bible, it says that he suffers on the cross. The Mormons say the real suffering was in the garden. When it talks about that he's the Alpha and the Omega, he's always existed. The Bible says this. Uh, the Mormons say he hasn't. He was created by uh, his father. When, it's, when it says that there is none other like him, the, the uh, LDS say there are other gods. When it says no matter what it is, Jesus and, and, and Christianity is altered throughout, even down to the Bible. So that's what makes explaining it more difficult for someone who doesn't really understand what Christianity is in the first place. Does that help? Yes, that, that helps a lot. And I'm going to um, guide her to that Internet site, or I will, you know, pull some things up and send it to her because it's very hard for me to explain. Yeah. Where does she live? She, she just, you know, she's with blinders on. She just... That's all that she's ever known. Yeah, where does she live? What, what town? In Caseville. Oh, well, you know, if she, if, if she wants to meet with people who can start to explain to her the differences, email us, and we'll set up a meeting, and, and those representatives will come out, and they'll just explain what those differences are. Boy, I don't know whether she'd even open up the door. <laughs> well, when she's ready, you let us know. Okay, thank you so much, Sean. All right, Lorna. Have a good night, and God bless you. God bless you, too. Bye-bye. It's tough because if you don't know Mormonism, 
or and you don't know Christianity, it's tough to be able to explain to somebody why a church that's called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints isn't Christian. It just seems like it, it would be, right? Uh, definitely, definitely not. We have a question here off air. Who did Christ pray to? We're going we're gonna to wrap it up with that. If you're calling in, we'll pick it up. Um, let me just explain this the best I can. We covered this at the Bible study on Sunday. Jesus Christ, John 1.1, calls him the Logos. And that means um, he embodies all the heart and brains and emotions and ideas and dreams, if I can use that. Everything about God, Jesus Christ embodies. In the beginning was God. And God is there. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And Jesus came down to earth and he became man. He became incarnate. That means he took on flesh. But in him, the Logos was all that God was. Colossians says that in him dwelled the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So Jesus is born in a manger and he is a baby and he is all man and he is all God. And he learns through obedience to the Father's will how to be uh, in flesh. So when Jesus prayed, he was praying to his Father. Just like when we pray, we pray to the Father. We're praying through the Son's name or we pray to the Son now. Whatever, whichever you do, both are biblically based. But when Jesus was on the earth, he prayed to his Father who was in heaven because he had taken on flesh. It's not two gods. It's like a flame of fire, flame of fire. We've talked about that before. So Jesus prayed to the Father. Christians believe there was a Father, Son. There is a Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he was praying to his Father to show us that we do the same. That's why he came to earth, to save us then, uh, uh, overcoming all sin, overcoming all temptation, overcoming all trials, and then offering himself up on our behalf and dying. He's now our mediator to the Father, still in his body of flesh, saying, forgive them. They believe in me. You understand that now? Hopefully that will help a little bit. Listen, we have two books for your consideration. Uh, I was a born-again Mormon, and uh, if then, we also have Girl, a video, all available at www.hotm.tv. You can also watch all the archived videos of HOTM dating back, uh, going on six years now. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm going to break. I'm gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, Break my rusty cage.